It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome into your daily look at the Cincinnati Reds. My name is Jeff Carr. This is the Lockdown Reds podcast. On today's show, we're going to talk about some baseball history. Looking back at the Reds in the dead ball era with Can Miller. What's up, everybody? Welcome into the Locked On Reds podcast. This is going to be a bit of an interesting episode because it's a Throwback Thursday episode on a Friday. So welcome into Throwback Thursday Friday. Yeah, I know. This week's been really weird here on the Locked On Reds podcast. Hopefully next week we get back to normal. My personal schedule's been all topsy-turvy this week, and that kind of reflects on the podcast. So sorry about all of the random release times and release days for different days and stuff, but let's just enjoy this. I, I, I had a lot of fun talking with Cam Miller. I very much love baseball history, and when you talk about baseball history, it's been around for a long time. We're looking at an era of baseball that happened, or at least it started, over 120 years ago, and it ended over 100 years ago. So it's a long time ago. We don't really have a whole lot of people saying, boy, I remember back in the day in the dead ball era. No, it's, it's nothing like that. It's just something fun to look back on because it is a time that is completely different from the way that the game is played today. And with Cam coming on today, this is kind of unwittingly beginning a series. Every couple of weeks, I'm going to have Cam back on. We're going to look at different parts of this dead ball era here on the Locked on Reds podcast. But let's start part one of the series right now. All righty, for today's Locked on Reds, we're going to do a throwback. going to talk about something that most uh, casual baseball fans, they know the word. They, they've heard of the dead ball era. In fact, whenever you talk about statistics for uh, pitchers and hitters, usually if they have a really, really good season nowadays, they're like, boy, that's the best since the dead ball era. And that's about the end of the understanding for most casual fans. And, you know, obviously Reds fans, we know the 1919 World Championship team. But I have with me a man who knows way more about the dead ball era than that. He is our friend from the Reds Hall of Fame Museum. He is the industrious, the illustrious, the magnanimous, and the fabulous Cam Miller. Cam, how are you doing, sir? I am doing fantastic, and I will never, ever able to be able to live up to those kind words. So thank you very much. <laughs> I, I don't know how to do much, but I can Google synonyms for awesome. So uh, no, that, is, that is cool. I need to do that. You know, when I'm writing scripts for the Hall of Fame, I need to start using some sites to give me some different words, you know, no more cliches. It's a new era. We got to get, we got to get bold. <laughs> Absolutely. So I've always had an intrigue for the dead ball era. I mean, you go back, you look at players like Honus Wagner and guys like that that are well known to the casual baseball fan and guys who love baseball history. But as far as the Reds are concerned, that's kind of a underserved era of baseball as far as their historical knowledge. And there's a lot of really good stuff about the dead ball era. I know that you had mentioned um, off air about this, that you guys had some plans for the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing with me today about this awesome stuff. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it's, 
You know, the dead ball era, you're right. It's such a fascinating era as far as, you know, encompassing all of baseball. But when it comes to the Reds, it's just such a weird, weird time because, I mean, you classify it from 1901 to 1920. That's like the general consensus of what is the dead ball era. Well, if you want to break it down, it's pretty much just two decades, you know, 1901 to 1920. Of course, we all know 1919, as you mentioned, was the – uh, the World Series, but there were some bad, bad teams, and also some good, good teams mixed in there. It's, I think, what their record was one. They won uh, 1,542 games, and I think lost 1,453, something like that. It was they were very mediocre. You know, there wasn't. But you had these teams and these eras in in those years that were like, wow, they were really, really good, and they would fall off the face of the earth the next year. I think it was 1906 where. They lost. They were fifty-one and a half games back. Like, wow. it, just insanity to think that that's possible. <laughs> but, and then a few years before that, they were five hundred, so they weren't terrible. But I mean, the competition back then, you know, it's just unbelievable. But you know, the term "dead ball era." What does it mean? Well, I mean, there was a lot of things that were put into place that that caused the dead ball era. I mean, you had um, the foul strike rule. So remember that before nineteen oh one. Um, foul balls weren't strikes. And the only time it was a strike was if you bunted foul of the strike. So there was these guys who would master the art of fouling pitches off to wear a pitcher out. It was kind of like the, what they did. And there was, they weren't called strikes. That, that, you know, makes a big difference. You know, the right. spitball of course was, was legal. You could deface the baseball in any way possible and imaginable. And believe me, the pitchers back then did. <laughs> I mean, they would do anything they could to get an advantage. So you've got that, that was, that wasn't um, banned until 1920. So defacing the ball, you had sacrifice bunts were a huge, huge, huge deal back then. It was like the thing to do, uh, uh, aggressive base running. I mean, p- players were running at, at numbers unheard of. And, of course, that also means more outs because they're being so aggressive. So the, all these factors, it wasn't just at the ball. I mean, we kind of want to say that the dead ball, well, obviously we're talking about the actual physical baseball. Well, that's true. But remember, it was – made with Australian wool. So there was a different kind of wow. fine wool that was made of. And the, the, the center, um, it, w- it wasn't changed until I think it was 1910, 1909, 1910, when it went from cork to rubber. You know, so where they had the, um, the dead ball actually wasn't dead ball. And it wasn't until Babe Ruth came along and started swinging for the fences. And another factor is that the fields were so different. These massive, massive fields where you were playing in the 1880s and 1890s were some uh, – uh, they didn't have fences. I mean, so you're hitting wow. the ball and you're running. So the inside the park home runs were a big deal. So, I mean, there's all these factors that come into the dead ball. But when it comes to the Reds, it's one of the more fascinating, you know, eras in their history because of the fact that they were so very bad and yet so very good. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting time because you look at it and especially compared to what the game is nowadays where we're talking lots about launch angles and exit velocities and how guys can get their slugging percentage up and extra base hits and things like that back then like if you look at the statistics slugging percentages were pretty close to the actual batting average i.e. It was just a lot of really well-placed hits, a lot of singles, a lot of things like that. But there were still plenty of runs to go around. It's not as if it was the dead run era. It was just the ball didn't go very far. Right. Oh, absolutely correct. And and look where the Reds played. I mean, 1902, they're the Palace of the Fan. Um, right field was 450 feet away. 
So <laughs> lots of inside the park home runs. You, you talk about Great American you know, Ballpark in the short porch, the exact opposite of that in 1902. Wow. And then it's 395 into right center. Um, was it 387? I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head. 387 to dead center. It was a weird quirky dimensions were kind of weird because of the way the walls were angled. Um, 412 to left center, 442 or 43 to left field. And there's 145 homers hit in the Palace of the Fans history, and 134 of them were inside the park. So that just goes to show you how, how it was in that era. And then you go from there to 1912 in the middle of the dead ball era where it's 360 to left field, 420 to center field, 360 to right, and like the, the cross dimensions. And they moved it in and tried different things over the years. But, um, yeah, the park has an absolutely uh, – a huge factor in how the dead ball era was played in parks, especially in Cincinnati with, you know, you go from Palace to the, the fans were 450 to, to Redland Field when they finally, you know, move into there and they built that. It's just a totally different, totally different ball game. And that changes everything. It changes how you build your team. No different than how they would build the team for the Big Red Machine and using the turf at Riverfront Stadium. That's kind of what they were doing during this dead ball era, trying to do the best they can with what the rule changes that happened in the 1880s, how they would affect you know, play going forward. And the general managers and the managers and the, and the owners, they all knew this. No different than today. We talk about launch angles. We talk about these things. And I'm not the hugest fan of all of the analytics. I just like to play baseball and watch a baseball game. But I do understand the essence of what it is. I get why people are so into it. And it's no different than back then. They were looking at numbers. They were trying to figure out the best way to win. Baseball really, really hasn't changed that much in aspects of trying to get the edge when it comes to numbers. And the dead ball era is no exception to that. So when you look at the dead ball era, obviously when lineups and stuff like that are much, much more differently evaluated and pitchers had to have just absolutely crazy statistics. I mean, I'm guessing there were some pitchers on the Reds teams that their ERAs are probably less than one, weren't they? Oh, right. Absolutely. I mean, it's really funny to think about the two. If you look, okay, let's look at offense and, and, and pitching, okay? When it comes to pitching, the best pitcher in my estimation of that era was Bob Ewing. Long Bob Ewing was six foot six. The dude is six foot six. He's a spitball master. Um, he pitched from 1902, 1909 for the Reds, and he still has the best ERA, 237, I believe. He's the career best ERA, 235, I want to say, 235, 237, somewhere bad. in that ballpark. The best career ERA. It's amazing. But then you look at the flip side of that. Where and the, the pitchers, by the way, there were there was not that many. Um, it's not like a rotation of today with the Bowers and the Grades. It really wasn't that. We didn't get a good rotation again until the the 1919 World Series, and into the 20s, where we had a really really good rotation. Back then, in the teens, tens, it was not. Um, it was you had one or two good pitchers, and that was about it. You talk about the. I don't think their 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 pitching rotation was the same for two consecutive years in that whole period. Wow. It flipped and flopped and flipped, and they were pulling up guys from these amateur teams that played in the sandlots. Can you throw hard? Come on in. It was just a different time, but it's amazing the fact that we had the, uh, Long Bob Ewing, who was just a Reds Hall of Famer, of course, and was just a fantastic pitcher that nobody remembers. I mean, he's got a first of all, he's got a great name, Long Bob Ewing. Come oh, yeah. on, that is the the prototype, you know, dead ball name. I love it. But you have him, then the flip side, you go to offense, who did you have? You had Cy Seymour, the Michael Lorenzen of the dead ball era. The dude was a stud pitcher and a stud center fielder. Um, he, the, the, the one fascinating thing that always I'm always reminded about with, with, with um, Cy Seymour is that he would have won the Triple Crown in 1905. He led the NL in batting average, 377. 
121 RBIs, 40 doubles, 21 triples. His slugging percentage was 559. He nearly wins the triple crown. He is the only reason he doesn't win the triple crown is because he's hit eight home runs and his teammate hit nine. Fred Oddwell, <laughs> one home run. It was from his teammate. He talked about some. Um, shenanigans going on in the clubhouse. Come on, can you <laughs> yeah. can you help me out here, man? Like, dude, One pull home up run win the triple crown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you please just something? I mean, because you know those are inside the park home runs. So it's like, come on, cut, cut, I'm I'm going to win the triple crown here. So. Yeah, that's just one of those fascinating stats that you just don't see anymore. But again, it goes to show you the juxtaposition. You got the, one of the best pitchers in Reds history, a Reds Hall of Fame pitcher who, you know, played 1902-99 great seasons, and then you go to you know, Cy Seymour, one of the greatest offensive careers that nobody talks about. We talk about the Vados and the Roses, but Cy Seymour for six straight years was just a stud in an era when hitting the ball was very difficult. So, I mean, it's just it goes with the whole thing where the dead ball era for the Reds is such an interesting era, like you said at the top. It's just there's this crazy thing where they had some really bad teams and really good teams, and it's just an amazing thing that we never really think about anymore, especially in this day and age where it's offense rules. Yeah, that's a piece of trivia. I'm sure some people know this uh, piece of trivia, but just in case you didn't, you can now wow all of your Reds fan friends because the career leader in batting average for the Cincinnati Reds is Cy Seymour. And Something that I was uh, thinking of, too, you mentioned all the spitballs and Long Bob Ewing being a specialist in that area. Uh, I would hope that there were no players like Yasiel Puig that like to lick their bat, because I'm guessing that would not be good. Yeah, can you imagine? Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah, back then in those days, I mean, they were trying all kinds of things, but licking the bat, I don't know about. That would be interesting to find out. If only we had footage from back then. Believe me, (laughs) as a documentary filmmaker, I long for finding some old footage where somebody grabbed a camera and just you just had a little bit of batting practice or something to to see if somebody was trying to hit a ball 450 feet during batting practice down the right field line. Who knows? I mean, maybe one day some footage will show up and we'll get to see a player – you know, licking about or seeing some sandpaper in the dugout as they're trying to, you know, scuff up a baseball. But yeah, it's such a different time. If you find the footage, or if you find a DeLorean, send to Cam Miller, care of Reds Hall of Fame Museum. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Absolutely, that That's would be easy. that would be amazing to go back and see. And you mentioned the nicknames. Like back then, you just don't have names in baseball. I mean, you don't really have nicknames anyway in baseball. Except for the big donkey, shout out to Adam Dunn. But you know, <laughs> you, you don't have these awesome nicknames like you had back then with Long Bob Ewing and all all the kind of different ones like that. What other nicknames were there on the Reds back then? Oh gosh, there's so so many. I can't even just think. There was there was, of course, Long Bob Ewing. I mean, Cy for Cy Seymour. Um, Cyrus was his name. But then you had there was a guy that I can't remember his real name. But I know that they called him the horse because – and it wasn't because of his – how big he was. I, he was a utility player. Just the, the name I can't remember, but it was because of – he would run after games so fast like a thoroughbred mm-hmm. to the local bars, and he would hit every <laughs> single one after the game. And they called him the horse. And, I mean, you're right, though. It, the reason why they gave these nicknames is because that's how you did it. It wasn't to be cute for the, for the newspapers. It was because that was just what they would do as the camaraderie between teammates. It's not like Chris Berman, you know, how it kind of made him who he was, you know, as a broadcaster. It was just because that's what they did back then. It was just – and it, it gave the players a personality. 
something that, you know, I don't think you see as much today. The personalities, sure, with the bat flips and doing that's awesome. And let the kids play. I get it. But you had to earn it. You weren't 19 getting a nickname and, and you were you had to be 27, 28, 20. You had to earn the veterans would let you know when you were allowed to have a nickname and when you were allowed to speak and when you were allowed to have a personality, <laughs> which, of course, that whole dead ball era, that's what it was. I mean, you had these guys that were pitching until their 40s, you know, and they would be they would be pitching 40 complete games a year and they'd have 20 shutouts a year. I mean, just a different, different, different game. And it's whether it's the nicknames or whether it's, you know, the way they played the game as far as strategy, it was a different era. And again, one of those eras that you never, ever hear much about only because like you said, it's let's go back. It hasn't happened since quote the dead ball era. Well, the dead ball era was a fascinating time. And think about this. We had the worst team that's finished 51 games in a few short years we win 96 and win the World Series with one of the greatest teams ever assembled in not just Reds history, baseball history. That's the other thing, too, about the dead ball era is that it began the World Series. In fact, the World Series didn't even start until 1903, so you had a couple of years of baseball before it began. And then you had the uh, scandalous 1904 season where the Giants just refused to play against the American League. They they said that it was inferior and they had nothing to gain by it. And it just, it blows my mind to look back at stories like that because nowadays, I mean, obviously we don't think of the National League or the American League as either one of them being inferior. I mean, sure, we can evaluate team performances in different leagues and stuff and say, well, okay, one one league had a better year than the other league. But back then it was a legitimate, almost prejudicial feeling against the National League in uh, the Giants and uh, they had against the American League. It was just phenomenal to look back on uh, stories like that. Right, and look at all the look at what popped up during that time during the dead ball era because uh, because exactly what you're saying. I mean, the Federal League, the Federal League really was the biggest threat, and that was you know 1912, 1913, 1914, and 15, and of course Covington Blue Sox being in 1913 throwing a team there because nobody wanted to go watch the Reds. They were terrible. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> let's try to cash in on this. Players leagues. There was leagues starting, not just not just major league. We're talking minor leagues and independence. It was such a, a growing, prosperous era in the dead ball era because all of these teams and leagues and the nicknames of these teams back then, it's just so, so cool to see. Of, of course, you know, the national league was the grand that he was like, we know what we're doing. We have been around long enough. Don't try to come in here with your new rules and your, you know, your salaries and your business. We are the one. And of course, when you get too big for your britches sometimes, and you've got these other leagues that come up and one of the, you know, speaking of leagues, one of the fascinating things, I don't know if you watch my Blue Sox doc, you will know this, but um, Covington was very, very close to getting an American League team when the American League formed. Comiskey was seriously considering putting the White Sox, which obviously he started out in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota era and with the minor league team, which became the Chicago White Sox. It was almost the Covington White Sox. They were going to move to Covington wow. because he loved the Eric. I mean, Comiskey played for the Reds, the manager Reds. So he's, he knew the, the, the area and he knew what a hotbed Northern Kentucky, greater Cincinnati was. So he thought, well, I can't have a national league team because of the five mile rule and the clause and the laws that, you know, they had to adhere to, but uh, this new American league, if I can put another league team in the area and 
They, they had talked about it. There were former players that came to, to donate money to his cause. He really seriously was going to put a team in Covington. So what would it have been called the White Sox? I don't know, but it sure does make that 1919 World Series feel a little different. It was the Chicago or the, the Covington White Sox versus the Cincinnati Reds. But yeah, one of those things where people were trying to capitalize on the, the popularity of baseball, even when it was in cities like, you know, you wouldn't think of Cincinnati as a major metropolis like Chicago or New York or in LA where you could have two teams and get away with it. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a thought, a serious thought uh, in the early 1900s. Well, that would be an interesting thought. Yeah, the Subway Series uh, back in the early 2000s between the Yankees and the Mets, you would have had the Riverboat Series between the right, Reds. Exactly. <laughs> Jump on the boat, the ferry, and go over to the game and you know, come back to Covington for the next game. I mean, I, I really was shocked when I found that information out when I was doing my doc, that it, how close it really came. But the reason it didn't uh, come to, to fruition was because of the fact that Comiskey was – did not he was not what you call a rebel rouser. He didn't want to start trouble with his friend Gary Herman and all his Cincinnati friends and you know, that he, he did they, he knew he would take some people off sure. if he put a team that close. <laughs> uh, so he decided to back off on it. But it all oh, what could have been. Given what White Sox fans are feeling nowadays with uh, the return of the manager that shall not be named, I'm guessing they wish they weren't in Chicago. But uh, Oh, you're absolutely 100% <laughs> correct on that. Oh, man. Well, Cam, sir, I appreciate your time, man. We're talking about the dead baller. We may have to revisit some more uh, in-depth stuff later on this offseason talking about this dead ball era for the Cincinnati Reds, but I definitely wanted to hit on Cy Seymour and talk a lot about that. And then, of course, Bob Ewing as well. Yeah, just a fantastic era that because it's been so long, it's obviously been forgotten because, I mean, heck, I, I forget what I eat for lunch yesterday, but, you know, 110 <laughs> years ago, there was still baseball. So it's it's good to look right. back on stuff. Absolutely. And anytime, and we can go in the top five pitchers of the air, we can go and look at the top five to 10 hitters. And, you know, we can talk about the ballparks and what they – you, you know, how, how each National League park and what their runs were and how, how it played out. And, of course, the business decisions that they had to make. There were so many decisions that were based upon. This was kind of like the, the dawning of the analytics movement where you started to see all these different ways to, to score. The rules had changed, and, and, of course, they wanted to adhere to the rules, but also try to figure out how to get a competitive advantage through the dead ball era. So you're right, absolutely fascinating, and we'll definitely, definitely have to revisit it and kind of go do a deep dive into some of these players and their fascinating history. I do believe we are witnessing the birth of an off-season series, dare I say. All right, Cam, I appreciate you, man. Uh, thanks for uh, coming on today, and we'll, we'll do this again very soon. Very good. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Let's go, Rex. Hey. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.